We're going to get right into it. If you have your Bibles or a Bible app, open it, tap on it to the letter sent to the Ephesians, which is in the right half of your Bible, towards the skinny side. If you reach Revelation, you've gone too far, so just turn to your left a little bit. We, uh, are going to get right into it. This is what we would consider the last installment or the last sermon um, based on 11 verses found in Ephesians chapter 2. It's been a three-part message series about the sin that separates and the Savior who unifies. Now that three just turned into a four because we're ending today. So I added on another week. And this week's title is God's Holy Temple. Okay, so picking right up where we left off, we are learning about the three different ways the author, his name is Paul, the three different ways Paul describes the Christian community. And in our context, specifically the Christian community and how they bring unity to the world. Unity within the church and then unity to the world. So for the past month, we've been challenging ourselves to think biblically about the sin of separation, the sin of division. We all see it in our world. We know who hates who. It's continuous. It's always there. It's always ongoing. But we've also seen the good news of how Jesus Christ is the only truth which has the power and the authority to unify people, first within his church and then within his world. Paul, the author of this letter, is writing to a group of people who live in an ancient city called Ephesus. That's why it's the Ephesian letter. They are Ephesian Christians. Paul is writing to a group of people in the ancient city of Ephesus. This is like modern-day Turkey. And he's explaining to them the why and the how of unity. First, unity in God, and then unity with one another. And Paul is addressing, he's writing a letter to a church where there were Jewish people and where there were Gentile people. Gentile is non-Jew. Anybody that's not a Jew, like I'm a Gentile, okay? That's me. If you're not Jewish here, you're welcome, okay? So this is the how and the why they are unified. And so Paul is writing a letter to a church where Jew and Gentile people were both present. Now, these two people groups had a deep, deep hatred for one another. A deep hatred. But now they've been saved. They are Christian. And therefore, they're learning how to set aside that history of hatred and division. And they're unified in one spirit in the church. Paul's the author. And he writes to these people to remind them who they once were before they met God. And who they are now. They are near to God. They are children of God. God. They were once far away from God. They were alienated from him. But now they belong to him. They have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, and by their faith, they have been unified again with God in his spirit and making, being part of one new mankind, which was, we keep referencing a few weeks ago, Um, we challenged ourselves to realize that the Bible talks about God creating one new race, one new mankind. Paul is very clear about that. So when the Jews and the Gentiles became Christian, believers in Jesus, they, know, they were no longer Jewish, nor were they Gentile. They were Christian first, who happened to be Jew, who happened to be Gentile. And a few weeks ago, we challenged ourselves to say, the church is unified not because of our ethnicity, although it is beautiful and diverse, and God has that for a purpose. We look different, smell different, talk different. We do all things differently because God is uniquely created every single person. However, God says that's not what you unify around any longer. You are one new mankind. You have a new heart. You have a new mind united in one new spirit. And to get to this deep truth within their heart, Paul drives home this message by using three different metaphors, by explaining his people using three different metaphors. Last week, we talked about a political metaphor and a familial metaphor so we're no longer strangers and aliens in a foreign land. We're in, we're in God's kingdom. We're part of his kingdom now. And we're no longer alienated from him, but we're sons and daughters. We're his family. So if you're a Christian, you're a son or daughter of God. So then this third metaphor he uses is a religious metaphor. So I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read five verses. I'm going to start at verse 18 through 22. If you don't have a Bible, the Sky Bible will take care of your needs. Okay? Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. Paul says, For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So through Jesus, through our faith in Jesus, everyone has access to God in one spirit. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Last verse here, verse 22. In him, in Jesus, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
Here's what Paul says, the big idea. Paul says the Christian, the people of God are like stones who are being built into a holy temple in the Lord. It's a strange metaphor. Now, I'm nothing more than a rock. You're welcome. But these stones are not like regular gravel stones. It's not the one you'd find in your yard or in your driveway. They are stones used, constructed for building, for erecting large temples. They are large stones. These are big stones which would be used to build a temple. They're stones which God has selected for a purpose. It's not just any random rock that you see on the road. These stones have an eternal purpose because they are being built together to construct this temple in the Lord. And in this temple in the Lord is a place where God will dwell with his people, a place where his word will take every thought captive, and a temple where Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. So to understand the temple better, to understand your life in Christ as a part of this temple, as a stone, we're going to just look at three different characteristics of this temple. Number one, first thing we must see is that God is building the temple. It's God's work. He's doing the building. The good news about this life, the good news about the Christian message is that God has not left us alone. Amen? We're not alone. We often feel alone, but God has not left us alone. He has come near to us. The Son of God put on flesh. He became like us. He lived the life we could never live because he was perfect, but he was tempted in every way we have been tempted. That's striking. He suffered in the ways that we have gone through suffering, and then some because he was crucified on a cross, so that in his death, we may discover our new life. So God has not left us alone. He has come near, and this new life is a gift from God. He is the one planning for it. He is the one preparing you for it. He has built it. He is saving people. He is restoring people, and he is healing people day by day by day, right? God is doing the building, so then, if God is the one building this new temple, this, mean, this means, this indicates to us that the Christian life is all about rest. It's all about resting. Some of y'all need to hear this. You do. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, and mentally, you are exhausted. You are exhausted. And if you're a believer, a follower in Jesus Christ, you need to know that this entire new Christian life is about rest. It's all about knowing physical rest and spiritual rest. And here's why. Because God is building, which means God has accomplished the work. He has accomplished everything necessary for the salvation of his people. Nothing relies on you and I. The Christian message is not that people need to work harder so God will approve of them. That's not what the Christian message should be, ever. That's demonic. It's never work harder so God will love you. The Bible is all about this one single message, is that God approves of you because Jesus has already accomplished the work that needs to be done. Jesus has done it all. He hangs on a cross, and what does he say? It is finished. Some of us, we frantically walk through this life, emotionally and spiritually exhausted, because we, if we just do the right things, if we just don't mess up again in the same way, if we just don't have those thoughts again or walk in that path again, God will love me again. Friends, that's not true about the gospel. That's not true. Your faith is enough. In faith alone, we come to God. In faith alone in Jesus, your belief and your trust in him. And that life can never be taken from you. The Christian message is not God approves of me because of what I do. The Christian message is God approves of anyone who believes in what Jesus has done. Amen? This message must be shared. This is what we've been about since we've started this place. One single message that Jesus has accomplished all that is necessary for the sinner to become a saint. There are so many people waking up each and every day hoping God will love them based on what they do. But oh, how different of a life we would live and they would live if they knew. If they only knew that God would love them because of what his son Jesus Christ has done for them. God is building his temple. Before the foundations of the earth were set, before he said, let there be light, he created the plan to save his people. He has done the work and he continues to do his work until the last person, the very last person is brought into his kingdom. God is building the temple. Second, the temple is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. So we are the stones being built into a holy temple. God took you as a stone, I guess, 
you're welcome. Nothing more than a rock. He took you, and he's building you into his holy temple, but he's building you upon the foundation of the teaching and the word of God as outlined in the apostles and the prophets. And it seems as though each week we get to pause and remember that we have one authority in this church. And it's not me because I'm two feet higher than you with a mic on. It's not me. Many of you look at me sideways when I say I have no authority in this church because I don't. This is the authority in this church. We don't stand upon top of it. We don't stand next to it. It resides over us. So everything, everything we say, think, or do has to be filtered through what God has already said. This is our authority, and that's what Paul says. God is building his people together in a temple, unified, and he's building it upon the teaching of those who he has chosen to teach, the apostles and the prophets. And this teaching is everlasting. It will remain forever, and this temple will never fade away because the word of God is everlasting. It will never fade away. It will always be relevant. It will always be sufficient. It will always be perfect. And this is, this is really interesting for us because we visit and we drive around and we travel and we see massive structures being built. I am, a little bit about me, I'm amazed at how buildings get built. You see them one day and then a month later, they're done. I don't even understand it. And then you see the massive cranes and I don't even know how they got the crane up there to begin with, let alone the building that the crane is erecting. I don't even know how it works, but it's impressive. We have done a lot of great things as mankind, but think to yourself, Every time you travel and get overwhelmed by by what mankind can do when we put our minds to it and what we can build, just know that one day, every building that you see will rust and rot and be torn down and be replaced. All those temples and structures will go away. But there is one thing that will remain forever. That is the temple in the Lord built on the teaching of God. The The word of the Lord will remain forever. It's never going away. Our faith, our belief in the word of God, our belief in Jesus Christ is an everlasting faith. It's a trust that never lets us down. Meaning, you will never need an upgrade. You will never need a new model of faith. You will never need a fresh faith. You won't even need a new coat of paint. You won't need to update your faith ever because your faith is built upon the eternal word of God as delivered, Paul says, through the apostles and the prophets. This is a new temple. There is none like it. Paul says that the teaching of those 13 men in the New Testament that God had chosen, whom Jesus had sent, that is the teaching that we must sit under. It is an authority over us. The apostles are the 13 men who laid down their lives in the New Testament to follow the call and bring this good news to the nations. In effect, you and I are here enjoying our new life in Christ because 13 people obeyed God's call on their life. That is amazing. 13 people said, I will go and I will preach. And if necessary, I will die because this message is unlike any other in the world. There's nothing like it. In the book of Acts, it's in your New Testament. It's the Acts of the Apostles. So it kind of journeys us through the early church. It tells us who they are in chapter one. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew, i.e. Bart, and Matthew, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And of course, Paul was also given the right as an apostle. Paul is the apostle given the call to preach to the Gentiles, which is what he does his entire life. All of these men are like you and I. There existed no significance within them other than that which was given by them by God. They were normal people. In fact, they were messed up, man. They were mean. They were wrong. They were rude. They hated people. But God's gospel reformed their heart and their minds continually, day by day. Read the New Testament. You'll be like, oh, that looks like me. Yeah, you're right. These men would all suffer and die for the name of Jesus Christ. They died a martyr's death. Paul, the man who we're reading about, would actually be beheaded because of what he preached. But the good news of Jesus would spread, and here we are 2,000 years later, because 13 people obeyed the call. The message of the gospel started with a handful of people in the Middle East, and it has spread to nearly all, not all, but nearly all the nations in the world. That is amazing. 
And friends, that goes back to point number one. God's doing the work, isn't he? There is no way 13 idiots do anything right together. <laughs> right? I got me and a bunch of my friends who see us together. You're like, what are you guys doing? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I never thought about it. Now, this has got to be by the power of God. Then there are the prophets. You may recognize them from your Old Testament. They got funky names. Half of us want to name our kids that, but then we don't, which is good, right? Because half the people can't pronounce them. Now, there are the prophets. See, these are the people who are just as significant as the apostles. This is a person who has been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to encourage, to rebuke, and to comfort God's people, as well as communicate the mysteries and the revelations of God to the people of God. A prophet is someone who spoke with the authority of God by way of instructing God's people. Jesus pointed to the message of the prophets when explaining who he was and what he was sent to do. In the New Testament, what Jesus does is always point back to the Old Testament and say, remember when you were told by this person? Remember when you, God told you that through that prophet? Right, it's all about me. You guys are blind. I want to reveal this to you. There's a time, the day that Jesus was risen from the dead, the day that he rose again, the resurrection, there was a time where he walked alongside a few people and he explained this to them of who he was in accordance to the, the prophets in the Old Testament. I'm going to read it for you. It's found in Luke chapter 24, 20 some verses, so just be patient and buckle in for a second. Luke 24, uh, it's probably titled in your Bible on the road, the road to Emmaus or something like that. It says, that very day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, the day that his tomb was found to be empty, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. Now, that's, they're talking about the crucifixion. They're talking about the death of the Son of God. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, sneaky Jesus, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk, right? He's that parent. What were you guys doing? You already know. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only, this is like a backhanded compliment to Jesus, right? Be careful. Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? You know what's funny? is that the Bible does not record an isolated event of a handful of delusional people about who God is. That's not a good defense for why the Bible is wrong. What does it say? Are you the only person in Jerusalem who has not heard? Everybody was impacted at the crucifixion. Everybody heard. And these two were like wigged out. Dude, are you like, what's wrong with you? And he said to them, verse 19, what things? Oh, good job, Jesus. Pull it out of me more. And he said to them, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, right? Mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. He's hinting to the promise that Jesus gave. I'll tear down this temple in three days and I will build it again. And they're like, we thought you were the guy. And now it's been three days and we kind of understand what that meant, but now you're not even around. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. Women, you're amazing because Jesus revealed himself first to you. Don't ever forget that. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. Women are always right. That's just... <laughs> One point for me. Not in my notes, so I'm going to get back to it. You guys know how I get Say what's on the page. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Are you that dull that you did not see this in all the ways God had communicated to you? This is the plan of God. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, that Christ is Messiah, Savior, the new king, right? That's the word. That the Savior should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, here's what Jesus does. In the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's 
all of this, and all the prophets, he interpreted them, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things according to himself. Jesus gives them a Bible study as they're walking about how every old school prophet was actually talking about him. So they drew near to the village which way they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. For it is toward the evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in and stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he was talking with us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11, these are the apostles, and those who were with them and gathered together. 11 because Judas had killed himself for denying Jesus. Found the 11 and those who were gathered with them together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon, that's Peter, when they told them what had happened on the road and how he had how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Never forget that every word of this Bible points to Jesus. It's all about him, all the time. In fact, it's not even about you. I'm sorry, right? We often read the Bible and we put ourselves in the Bible, don't we? It's not about you. You're just a wicked sinner. Just know that, right? Be okay with that. Just own it. Because while we were still sinners, Jesus came to die for us, amen? Jesus is the message of the entire Bible. And this is why Paul now gives us the third thing. This is why he refers to him as the cornerstone. So number three, Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, both Paul and Peter, another biblical author and apostle, refers to this term cornerstone when they write and they talk about Jesus. They both use the word cornerstone in reference to what the prophet Isaiah said in his book, Isaiah chapter 28. So a prophet named Isaiah was around seven or 800 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And he was sent to give a message to God's people. Here's what he writes in the 28th chapter. And he writes this because God's people have once again turned away and ran towards false gods. Amen? Yeah. God's people never run away from him, do they? Yeah, some of you are convicted. Here we go. Once again, let me get an amen. God's people turn away and walk away from God. Amen? Amen. And I am the worst. That's what Paul says. I am the worst. Whenever you tell someone you're a sinner, tell them you're the worst. It's easier. Here's what he says. Chapter 28. Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion. Now, Zion being the city of God's kingdom. I am the one who has laid the foundation in Zion, a tested stone, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. 800 years before Jesus shows up, God says, I'm going to put something at the foundation that's going to hold everything together. I've planned it. It's coming. In the ancient world, if you wanted to build a temple, you'd want to pick out a perfect cornerstone. You'd want to construct a perfect cornerstone, as you see there behind me. It must be selected and laid first, and it had to be perfect. If the measurements and the density and everything involved in that cornerstone was not perfect, your building would not stay. It eventually just get a fall over. That was the essence of ancient temple building. You had to have that one cornerstone perfect. All other measurements are in accordance to that cornerstone. If the measurements were not right, if it was too brittle, if it was the wrong material, the building would eventually collapse. But if it was perfect, it would stand the test of time and the stress and the weight of the building being constructed on top of it. Paul reveals another truth about God that he has selected a perfect, a perfect cornerstone, a sinless savior who is truly man and truly God, one who could come and obey every law that he has ever given so that he could sacrifice for the people that haven't obeyed every law he has ever given. A stone which will stand all the rigorous tests, a stone which has the power to hold all the temple stones together. Church, this is the very center of everything. This is Jesus Christ, our cornerstone, who was selected by God to be the cornerstone of salvation. The word cornerstone and all of its meaning was used when the apostles preached to the crowds in the book of Acts. This was a constant theme that they pointed back to the Old Testament. Now, the book of Acts is a New Testament book, and it basically records the journey of the new church, how they got started, how they functioned. 
It's called the Acts of the Apostles. Here's a story in Acts chapter 4. Speaking about, so this is Peter. He's about to give a sermon. And Peter's got to preach to people because through the power of the Holy Spirit, the apostles were healing people. This crippled man gets up and he's healed. And of course, religious people are furious because some guy just was able to walk, right? Leave it to religious people. That means you. Now, speaking of a crippled man who was miraculously healed, this is what Peter says. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man is standing well before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. But this stone has become the cornerstone. And then he ends with this. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Praise God. Friends, no matter how dark the day, no matter, and some days are really dark. In fact, I can't even associate with your dark day. Your dark days are probably darker than my dark days. It's the truth of the reality of this world. There is under no other name in this planet, and there never will be, where you can find healing, where you can find a relationship with God, where you can be cleansed from everything you have done wrong, and where you can be cleansed from every wrong done to you. There is no name under heaven and earth by which anyone can be saved and be united united with God besides the name Jesus Christ. If you are here today, right, every time you open the Bible, it's an invitation. Just know that. If you are here today, you have not sought your forgiveness. If you have not humbled yourself before God and said, forgive me, I'm a sinner, you are not. If you have not trusted in the name of Jesus Christ as the means by which sin can be forgiven, I plead with you and I beg you, because I'm not above begging, that you do not wait another minute without crying out to God for your salvation. That's as clear as I can make it. There's another Bible that says, if you confess your sins before God, he is faithful and he is just to forgive them. You sit here right now and you say, I've never trusted in Christ for my salvation, but I want to. I need you to know something. We cannot minimize this. God, that is not an empty prayer. God will receive it and he hears it. And he has over the last 2,000 years because day after day, he's building his temple. This is the good news. God will hear your prayer. He will invite you into his family. He will build your life on top of the perfect cornerstone. Amen? Now, I want to summarize these 11 verses, which we've you know, talked about over the last four or five weeks. If you desire to listen to my voice again, which is kind of weird, we have a podcast that you can go and listen to these messages. I'm not all into that. Um, but these 11 verses, and this is the end of a, a four-part sermon series, but they've emphasized reconciliation, that word reconciliation. Paul has emphasized that in two ways. Vertical reconciliation, so us to God, we're now reconciled with God. And then horizontal reconciliation, us to one another. Both the Jew and the Gentile are reconciled to God in one body. And both Jew and Gentile, Paul says, are now united together in one spirit. So let me give you two summary statements about these verses. First, Without a peaceful relationship with God, with the God who made us, we will ultimately fail to experience peace in other relationships. Without a peaceful relationship with the God who made us, we will ultimately fail to experience peace in other relationships. Now, this does not mean every relationship will be peaceful. It just, not mean, it just means you can't even start to have peace with others unless you know that you have peace with God. I believe Paul continues to remind the Gentile Christians in Ephesus of this new vertical unity with God through what Jesus has done because because without this knowledge and without this knowledge finding its way practically throughout expressed, you know, in their everyday life, the horizontal unity with God or the the vertical unity with God and the horizontal unity with their Jewish brothers and sisters was not possible, not at all. According to Paul, whatever tensions had existed between the Jew and the Gentile, they ran contrary. They were the opposite of what the Bible calls them to. So without the truth of the gospel, you can never be unified. Second, if you are a Christian, 
You are called to honor the image of God in other people. You are called to honor the image of God in other people, meaning the image of God. It's called the Imago Dei. That's the teaching of the image of God. All people everywhere who have ever existed and whoever will exist are created in God's image. Every person, church, don't give someone dignity, just affirm it because they already have it whether you think so or not. It doesn't matter what you think of that person. Wicked or not wicked, every person has worth and dignity because they're an image bearer of God. We're not highly evolved bacteria. You know, we're not just stardust that bang together at some point. And here we are. It doesn't work like that. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen? I don't understand that. Either do I. Maybe we're not supposed to. We're not highly evolved bacteria. We're not really intelligent mammals. We are image bearers of God, created male and female. We are the crowning of his creation. We bear his image. And we are created to reflect his image to the world. It could be said this way. Without the truth of the good news of the gospel, that is that Jesus Christ saves sinners, the Jews would, re- in, this, in the context, in this church, the Jews would refuse to see the image of God in the Gentile, and the Gentile would refuse to see the image of God in the Jew. They still would hate each other. That millennium-long hatred between one another would still exist. Without a spiritual unity, the Jew and the Gentile would still be enemies. Hatred would define them. Bitterness would guide them. Disdain would characterize them. But because Jesus did die on a cross, those who are now enemies have now become friends. All of the sin between the Jew and the Gentile was paid for, Paul says. Jesus paid for all the wrongs that anybody had ever done between those two people groups. Jesus paid for those sins as well. Here's the idea. The Jew and the Gentile are told to not seek justice for all the past sins committed between one another. Now, we've been learning about these 11 verses in the context of unity. But we also realize that the church has a role in unifying the world, but we've gone about it some pretty wrong ways. We've adopted language of the culture. We've not thought about justice biblically. That's kind of the the cultural spin we're putting on this. That's not Paul's intention. Paul's intention was to clear up the disunity between the Jew and the Gentile. But certainly we can learn from this, right? And how we are to go out into the world to promote unity. Because we can see how God does it between these two people. Don't minimize the Jew and the Gentile division. It was far worse than your greatest enemy. I can guarantee you that. Far worse. Let that sink in. They are called to unity because of what Jesus has done. Forgetting what anybody has done to them in the past. Paul does not say, now that you're Christians, now that you see clearly, go ahead and clear up a thousand past years of evil between you. Get out your records of wrong. I know you guys remember them. Get them all out. Get out your journals. And let's go through every way we have been wronged by that people group and let's fix it. That's not what Paul says. You see, when you think about justice, meaning righting the wrongs, right? Just think about it that way. Righting those that, that which is wrong. We should remember that justice is really for God. God is the one who needs justice, not necessarily us, because we are the ones who have rebelled against him. We are the ones who have mocked him. It was our sin that put him on a cross. God demands justice. We don't need to demand justice. Because all of our sin, whether it affects somebody or not, is first and foremost against God. That's what the Bible says. You think you're just destroying your relationship today because of your anger or your bitterness? You're sinning against God in the exact same way. He hates it. He's the one who demands justice because he is the one who is most wrong when his image bearers rebel against his laws and his ways. God demands justice and he got it when Jesus died on the cross. That was, that was his method for forgiving sin, to sacrifice his one and only son. So then, what is our responsibility when it comes to justice? We've talked about this nearly every week in these verses. Here's my position. And I'm going to say our slash your position because if it's just mine, you might not like it. And I want you to be my friend, okay? So if you don't like it, we'll talk about it later, okay? Here's my position. The church is to be involved in acts of justice as outlined in the Bible and supported by the gospel. That's how we're to go about it. We are to right the wrongs of the world, if, if at all possible, under our control, in accordance with what we see in the Bible 
and if it is supported by the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, do not get me confused, because a few weeks ago, I tore down any healthy remnant of social justice, that term that we've heard a lot about. I've tore it down. I don't think it's biblical. I think the ideology is packed with sinful motives. I think it's drawn from a poisoned well. I think it promotes bitterness and hatred, and in fact, separates people more than unifies them. Quite literally. You can catch that message on the podcast. I don't think it's helpful. But we should be about justice because God is about justice. Throughout the Bible, God has routinely called his people to justice, meaning God calls his people to right the wrongs in terms of sin between people. So when you think about justice in a biblical way, you have to think about equity, not equality. Equity. Is everyone given what they're owed under the law, right? Look, if you don't study and get an F, can't argue for an A, right? Not about equality, it's about equity. And in the Old Testament, God has a law how to deal with people and they were not following it. So God said, you need to bring justice to that law. I gave you a law. You guys are perverting it for your own selfish gain, okay? So in the Old Testament, God would call his people to justice when the law was not treating people fairly or when people were not treated fairly under his law. For example, if the poor were going without and were not being treated fairly, God would said, you better fix that. That's not how I told you to live. Fix that wrong, right the wrong. The majority, if not all the verses about God's justice, which are throughout the entire Bible, have to deal with these people, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant, or the foreigner in the land. The poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. God bends over backwards to tell his people, this is who you fight for. This is who you support. This is who you lay down your lives for. This is who you sacrifice for. And this is why God always says it. Even in the New Testament, we'll get to that in a minute. God describes his church about doing justice. He tells them what to do. And here's why. Because being about these things is a sign that you've been saved by faith. That's what God tells his people. Hey, if you know me, you'll be about the things that I'm about. If you know me and you say you love me and you follow me, you'll love the things I love. And you'll hate the things I hate. And I hate when my law is perverted. And I hate when you guys are not treating each other fairly. A heart poured out to serve the needs of the poor and the vulnerable is evidence that you've been saved by grace. It is the evidence that you've been saved by grace. For example, the books on this side of your Bible, Amos and Jeremiah and Isaiah, all of them, all of them say that if you are not concerned for the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor, this is a sign that your heart is not right with God. God lit his people up for that kind of stuff. If you are not helping these people, you do not know who I am. That, that would crush us here in a minute, won't it? It's a challenging thing to us. It's okay. You're not perfect and neither am I. That's why you're welcome here, right? But the word of God challenges us to look at our lives clearly and see where we're falling short. Isaiah 58, this is how Isaiah describes it. He says, is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness? to undo the straps of the yoke, right? The yoke is the thing that held two oxen together, the big wood thing on their necks. To loosen the straps of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, cover him. Do not hide yourself from your own flesh. The true fast, a heart right with God, is pointed towards the poor. What is Isaiah saying? He's, he's using the word fast, right? That's a religious practice where you go without usually eating so you can focus on your relationship with God, whether in prayer or something like that. So you're intentionally going without to deepen your relationship with God. What Isaiah says is, hey, you know that way in which you worship? You know your whole religion thing? Here's how to do that correctly. It's to free those who are oppressed and to share your bread and to bring a homeless into your house and to cover the naked. That's how you're supposed to practice your religion. That's a true fast. God routinely called his people to make sure that others were treated equally under his law because God, God's people routinely failed at treating people equally under the law. There's an example of this in the New Testament. Some of you are like, but that's Old Testament. Gotcha. In the New Testament, right, there is this time where the Jews, God's people, they were perverting God's laws still in the time of Jesus. Mark chapter 12, it's what Jesus says. Beware of the scribes. Those are like religious people who wrote things down and they would help with the law and all that. Beware of the scribes who walk like, who like to walk around in long robes. I don't know why I just did that. And like greetings in the marketplaces, right? They like to be greeted first. 
They love all the attention. They got the long robes on like that. And they like to be greeted. And they have the best seats in the synagogues. And they're always taking the best seats in church. I wish some of y'all would love the front seat. And have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts. You sit down for dinner. They always want the high chair. They always want the position of power. But these same people, verse 40, devour widows' houses. Take advantage of widows who pretty much have nothing instead of supporting them. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. They look so holy. They're up there just praying away. Flowerly language, got all the right things to say. What does Jesus say about these people? They will receive the greater condemnation. I don't want to receive that. Friends, this is a challenge to us. This is not what God demands of his people. In Luke chapter 10, there's this time where Jesus sends out 72 people. He's picked 72 people. There's a whole crowd following him at this point. He's like healing people and creating bread out of nothing. He's doing all sorts of weird things, right? People are amazed. They're like, whoa. He says, here's 72 people. Go out and tell everybody that the kingdom of God is here. So they're told to go out, spread the good news. I don't think it's just coincidence that directly after Jesus, this is how Luke writes his message. By the way, every word is from God, and the way it's written is also important. So Luke sends out, says, Jesus sends out 72 people. The very next story is the story of the Good Samaritan, which is God's challenge to his people to be a good neighbor that this world needs. That's not a coincidence. Go out, tell people the message, and be a good neighbor like I told you to be. James chapter 2, he says, faith without works is dead. If you have a faith in Jesus Christ and it doesn't work out naturally in the way you respond to people and reflect on people and help people, is that really the true faith that can save you? James 2.16. This is his condemnation to the church. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is it? When a Christian walks up to somebody and says, oh, I know you're suffering. Be good. God loves you. See you tomorrow. And gives them nothing for what they need. You know what James says? What good is that? That's not, that's not religion God calls you to. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If you are not about loving the people that God told us to love, is your faith dead? That's my question. It's a sobering question, am I right? Sobering. Here's where the tension is today then. Here's where we start to get all confused and this is now we bring in the biblical language that I don't agree with and how the church should support the world around them, right? Today, we are told that every disparity, meaning the reality that some have more and some have less, right? Every disparity, wherever there's a people group that has more, whether it be money, status, education, whatever, we are told that every disparity is the result of an oppression or an oppressor. I just don't think that's true. And this is not guilt, but let me tell you, the poorest among us are far richer than everybody else on the planet. That's not to guilt you because you didn't choose to be born here. You weren't like, hey, mom, dad, could you, could you go to the United States? You didn't choose that. God put you here in this place and in this time for a purpose and a reason. That's not to guilt you. That's to tell you the world is not equal in what we have and what we don't have. And that is the result of sin. There are evil people who oppress others. Absolutely. We should call them out and they should get what's coming to them in a nice Christian way. But just because people don't have equal amounts of everything does not mean there is an oppressor, which is why social justice often gets it wrong. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because we want to attack every person who's different from the other when there could be nothing wrong. Just because poor people are poor doesn't mean the rich people are oppressing them. The poor will always be among you. So we must realize that God rightly defines the term of justice and therefore the world wrongly defines this term. We can't be sucked into it. So what does this mean for us? Some of you are like, I get it, move on. Now, becoming more passionate about what God is passionate about is a journey, understood. We're not all in the same place. Some of us are more passionate about serving those who are in need than others. And some of us are like, I don't think about that at all. Right? That's okay, right? Like it's a journey. We have to grow in this. But we must grow in a love for what God loves and a hatred for what he hates. As his people, that's what we're called to. Now, let's finish with th- three more things. Okay, I swear, I swear, I swear. 
sorry. Um, three things that we need to figure out how we're going to be involved in this world. Because here's the real idea. I could preach about justice week after week after week as outlined in the Bible. We'd never cover the entire topic, nor would it be appropriate. Because we open the word of God and we go verse by verse, book by book, right? I'm not going to hop around and talk about justice for two years. That would, you guys would leave. So I want my friends to leave. Now, we couldn't cover every topic. So here's what I recommend. Talk with it with your friends. Have an open conversation about what you feel is wrong in the world and how it can be made right. Those are good and healthy conversations to have. Do that through a biblical lens. Read your Bible. Read the, read the prophets. Read the names of the people you want to name your kids and shouldn't. Read those books because there's some, there's some really good stuff in there. Now, number one, God is gracious. By the way, if you've named your name of a prophet, like it's cool. I'm not, Jesus is not judging you. Um, I said that twice and some of you are like, should I not name my kid that? No, you just not Beelzebub. Okay. Or Jezebel, she was wicked. Don't do that. Okay, number one. Number one, God is gracious. That's the first thing. Because God is gracious because we are saved by grace. You didn't earn it. You weren't cool enough to attain it. God saved you even though you were horrible. Okay, just get over yourself. We're saved by grace. Therefore, we ought to be gracious to other people. No more treating people as if they have to earn your love or your service. We don't do that. No, we do. We shouldn't, right? See the tension? Let me give you some practical ways to focus on this idea of grace. It's the easiest one. If you are well off, you know what that means. If you are well off, you would do well to focus on how sinful you are and how loving God is. And here's why. Because most people who are well off, are, you, are, you are tempted to find your significance in your intellect, your ability to earn, and your social status. And as a result, you often look down on other people who don't rise to your level. Okay? You've been blessed by God with a brilliant mind. You got a bunch. Amen. Give half to the church. But do not look down on other people as a result. Those who have been blessed with more must protect themselves from looking to others who have less as not worthy of their love or their care. Okay? That's a true thing that happens. If you have been blessed with more, remember what Jesus has done for you. Even when you were his enemy, he still died for you. Right? And remember this, only those who are poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of God. And only those who are humble enough before God will inherit a relationship with him. So don't be too high on your horse there just because you got a lot. It's great. Give half to the church. Now this means if you are not well off, if you have less, if you're hanging out with me, right? If, you do not, if you're not well off, I have plenty. I have enough. Um, if you are not well off, you would do well to remember how you have been blessed in every way that Jesus has been blessed. Those who have little must protect themselves from envy because they see how God has blessed somebody else and they want the exact same thing. And then they're wondering, why hasn't God given me that life? This is envy. This is sin, by the way. It's a hard one, but it is. If you are not wealthy, healthy, and wise, it does not mean God does not love you. And this is the most evident, again, in what? The cross. Everything goes on the cross, doesn't it? Here's why. Because the cross which forgave the rich also is the same cross which forgives the poor. Amen? Same cross. Number two, God is compassionate. God is gracious. God is compassionate. So we should be also. Here's the key to this life. A life lived treating others the way they deserve to be treated is minimalistic and wrong if you're a Christian. Let me say that again. If you're living your life to treat people the way they deserve, you are wrong. This is not the Christian life. You should not walk through this life treating people as they deserve to be treated. Those who are built on the cornerstone and who are the stones to God's holy temple should walk through this life treating people better than they deserve. Far better than they deserve. Because the gospel says you have been treated far better than you deserve. That while we were still sinners, Jesus came to die for us. If you were to read the gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four books in the New Testament. They, they're kind of like a you know, their outline of Jesus' life and his teaching. I think if you were to count all the ways Jesus responds first with compassion, you'd be overwhelmed at how many times he responds with compassion. I think at the same time, we'd also be convicted about how little we respond with compassion towards people. In the church today, my own life, right? Remember, you get the message that has just torn me down all week, okay? So 
Join me in this. I fear that we are willing to be compassionate only with those who we think deserve it. And we must repent of this attitude and ask God to forgive us because we should be compassionate towards all people. People don't earn the compassion of a Christian. They get it because they're image bearers of God and we affirm their dignity. Amen? They're people. Last, and I swear the last, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Three, God is just, meaning he's righteous. He's right. He's good. He's perfect. He's just. He will do the right thing. Here's the good news. Whatever injustice exists in this world is being accounted for. Let me, in all love, let me tell you, every single sin in this world will be paid for in one of two ways. God demands a payment because he's just. It's paid for by you or it's paid for by Jesus. This is the personal note you need to figure out. And justice will not last forever. God is going to come and restore this world. But you will either account for every injustice or evil you have committed or your faith will assure you that Jesus paid for it. One of two ways. You either will stand before God guilty for everything you have done. That's a tough day. That should bring tears to our eyes as we try to reach a community with the good news of the gospel. There are people who are dying every day and they stand before God guilty sinners. Friends, that message needs to be told that there's hope because you can stand before God blameless because everything you have ever done Anything that's ever been done to you can be paid for by Jesus Christ at the cross. God is just, and he's going to right all the wrongs. And I'm asking you, will you stand before him guilty, or will you stand before him blameless? And maybe you're sitting here, and you're like, I'm guilty. Got it, and I'm freaked out. Listen, you're in the right place. There is no better place for you to be than here, right now. Not because of me, not because of this mic, because of the Bible. Amen? Here's the issue. By faith, we are saved. When you come before God and you say, I believe in who you were, who you are. I believe what Jesus has done. I know I'm a sinner and I know that you're pretty amazing. You're holy, you're perfect. Would you forgive me and invite me into your family? He honors that prayer. <clears throat> that prayer would never go unanswered. And it never has for 2,000 years since 13 people obeyed the call of God to tell everybody else that. So this is my challenge to you. Are you being built into God's holy temple? Or are you the stone being kicked down the road? There's always an invitation when you sit before the Bible. And I'm inviting you to confess your sins to God and become part of his family. 